Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing great. We got a very good guest today. He's a real doll. Uh, I knew you were going there. We're going to be talking to David Morgenstern, who is the vice president of sales for Madam Alexander. And this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, marketing and media agency, Chiscom, The Toy Guy, and Precise.tv. And David Morgenstern, welcome. We are really glad to have you with us. How are you? We're, we're doing really pretty good. You know, yes. I think the world's looking a little up. I'm only fantastic. So let's get going. Okay. We know that Madam Alexander is one of the most historic toy companies in the U.S. and for years was manufactured in New York City. And I had a chance to meet Madam early on in my career and talk to her when I was writing for Toy and Hobby World. I said to her, my aunt had the Sonia Henny doll. And Madam mm-hmm. said, when Sonia saw what I did with her nose, she had hers fixed to match. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. So Sounds about right. The dolls were always around in my aunt's home. So I think before we really get into talking, we should take a moment to talk about what an impact Madam Alexander, the woman, had on the toy industry. Richard, you had some thoughts on that. I think it's important that we, we take a minute and allow our guests to really position Adam Alexander is a very important historic figure, not just for the toy industry, but in an age of empowerment for women. Adam Alexander founded that company in 1923. She had to go through a depression. She had to go through World War II and numerous recessions and, and changes in the marketplace. And she was probably the first woman entrepreneur in the toy industry. So can, can you position her for us historically? You know, she started the business in lower Manhattan with her own money. And when I say her own money, there was no money. This is a woman that was very, very conscious of borrowing money, of finances. Uh, I don't think the the madam over the years ever borrowed a dime to run her business. And it really speaks to her sense of business, of management. You'll find also that when we take a look at who worked for Madam Alexander, uh, she was able to retain people for many, many years. There are many, many cases where uh, people had worked with Madame Alexander for over 50 years. And in multi-generations where grandparents and their kids and their grandkids came to work at Madame at the same time. Wow. So, you know, a sense of family first. Uh, yeah, she was hard, but, you know, she everybody stuck with her over the years. Everybody thought she was a terrific uh, businesswoman. Additionally, she also embraced a lot of the improvements in the toy industry. She was certainly the first person to make dolls out of plastic. And that was a big innovation. And why? Because she was always concerned about, and that's really how she started her business. Most of us are aware that she started the business. Father was a, a toy repair person. He had a little doll shop. He repaired toys and dolls. And she saw little girls coming to the shop with their broken dolls and said, gee, you know, this is not right. We have to start making dolls that little girls can actually play with and, you know, throw around and be a little bit rougher with. So they started making cloth dolls right before the start of World War II. When Plaxus came into being, she started making dolls out of plastic. She also invented the sleep eye, which is now a standard in in doll manufacturing. 
And, and most of our dolls still have sleep eyes. Absolutely. When people ask about a Madame Alexander doll, the first thing they ask, does it have sleep eyes? And the answer is always yes. And she was inducted into the Toy Industry Hall of Fame back in 2000, which puts her in a category with people like Betty James and Ruth Handler and other women who really were pioneers and mammoth figures in the toy industry. Yeah, it was certainly her time. I was there that night. It was ex- it was an extraordinary night. So before we get into talking about the company and where you guys are today, David, tell us a little bit about you and your career. Well, uh, been with Madame Alexander on and off a little bit for about 25 years now. The bulk of my experience is just about selling dolls <laughs> in, the, in, in the toy industry. I, I know very little else. I started a number of years ago in uh, consumer electronics for a large retail company on, on the East Coast. And uh, transitioned in 1997. It's just been those two experiences. Long time, long time. You know, Madam Alexander is a, a historically significant company and, and a marquee company of the 20th century. And here we are 20 years into the 21st century. And you have really transitioned both eras. Can you tell us a little bit about Madam Alexander as you first experienced it? And Madam Alexander, as it is today in 2021. In many respects, it's the same. In others, it's vastly different. In 1997, when I joined the company, we were talking about our 75th anniversary. And here we are about to talk about a millennial in two years. Uh, What's changed? We've grown from just a collectible company with our little eight-inch Wendy dolls, the darling of all the department stores in the United States, Federated, ZCMI, a lot of companies that aren't with us anymore, Dayton Hudson, Madame Alexander dolls were everywhere. Not true today. Specialty is a very, very different business. When I started with the company, we had about 2,500 small independent doll shops across the United States. There are relatively few left at this point. Uh, We still make collectible dolls today, but the vast majority of our business is in play dolls, addressing really the needs of the millennial mom and the little girl. In the 20th century, there were a lot of doll collectors, and these tended to be older women. Very frankly, a lot of them kind of passed away. Yeah, yeah. And nobody picked up the torch, so to speak. Is that a correct analysis? It is to some degree. The collectors that collected the Barbie and and a lot of them, Adam Alexander, as well as others, have have aged. But, you know, we still have a a very, very strong Madam Alexander Collector Club, the Madam Alexander Doll Club. They have a, a convention every single year. We're making dolls for those conventions. There's United Federation of Doll Clubs out there. Collector business is still relatively strong, not nearly what it was 25 years ago. I have to tell you that I'm starting to see a resurgence. We did uh, an enormous amount of collector business with FAO Schwartz and Neiman Marcus over the years, and we're still doing that now. FAO and Neiman, some of the other department stores have changed hands as well, and we're going back and making collectible dolls for them to celebrate, as an example, FAO's 160th anniversary next year. This is a segment of the business that's obviously profitable for you. And Mm -hmm. even though it's a small niche market, it's fairly deep, yes? It is, yes. Uh And we're really going to get into what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. But just to stay with the classic Madame Alexander doll, what was special about it? I think it started with Madame Alexander. You know, it's really the meaning of the brand. We talk about love is in the details. And it's really how the doll is made 
what type of design goes into the doll, the materials, the construction. So, you know, from the beginning, the, uh, uh, Madame Alexander the collectible doll has been something that's been very, very special. And to some extent, it worked to the detriment of the brand. To a large extent, the dolls were meant for little girls to play with. And because of the, the detail and the amount of work that went into each dolls, at some point over the years, they ended up on shelves as something to admire instead of something to play with. And that was really the transition of getting, you know, of little girls playing with, with the Madame Alexander dolls to them becoming collectible dolls with older women. And I think one of the things that distinguished the Madame Alexander doll was the face and the sculpts. And you looked at a doll and you knew that this was a Madame Alexander doll. And it, it was a brand like Tiffany or any of those iconic American brands. Yeah. You know, I've been to an awful lot of doll shows over the years, and it's hard to make a beautiful doll. <laughs> Yeah. I know some of them like you walk through toy fair and you go, you see some of the collector dolls and you go, that's creepy. Yeah, <laughs> sc- sc- scary stuff, scary stuff. So now you've transitioned into really focusing on baby dolls and play dolls. And what's what's prompted that? And how is that market going? Because it is a competitive market. Lots of things have changed both in the toy industry and as far as retailing goes as well. The pandemic has an awful lot to do with that right now. Lots of terrible things uh, associated with the pandemic. But the one thing that's positive is I think it brought clarity to what the millennial mom is looking for for their child. They're looking for quality. They're looking for play patterns. They're looking for something other than spending an awful lot of time on the Internet. Millennial moms spending more time with their children over the last year. I think they've realized that they need something different for the little girls and boys. How does the culture, the Madame Alexander culture and point of view and quality standards, how does that apply to the products that you're putting out now? I'll give you a quick story. When I interviewed with the current ownership of Madame Alexander, I said, you know, why did you buy the brand? Why did you buy the company? And the answer came back very simple. In the toy industry, there are iconic companies. We want to focus on Madame Alexander being the standard for dolls, all, all types of dolls. That's really the answer. That's what we're looking to do. Make sure that it's Madame Alexander that people are thinking of when they're thinking about dolls. We've been talking a lot with people about social emotional learning and mm-hmm. how important that is. And especially for kids coming out of the pandemic who have been isolated in their homes and suddenly they're going to be back socialized with other kids and you have an initiative around kindness and Mm -hmm. that seems to be something that's that's relatively new for you but it really is seems to be a hallmark of how you're positioning the brand today again it's it's really not new and again when you think about what why madam alexander started making dolls again to to appeal appeal to little girls and teach them about kindness about playing with other with other children about how to dress, about how to interact. It's just something that was started uh, almost 100 years ago. I was not aware, and and perhaps others are not, that Madame Alexander was way ahead of her time, providing uh, a message and values with the product. Is the company making consumers aware of that? One of the things that we're trying to incorporate into our product that the Madame was, was very, very well aware of is girl empowerment. One of the first owners of a of a toy company 
she started it in 1923. If you take a look at what she created over the years, there's an awful lot of dolls that were created around nurses in its day and doctors. And, and she was promoting the idea that girls can be a little bit more than just housewives. And of course, you know, what we're looking at right now is, is girl empowerment too. You'll see a whole line of doll products for next year called It's All Me. It's all about girl empowerment. And you've also expanded your distribution. You've, you've done a line of, for Target, for Target exclusives. And, I, and they're gorgeous, but I don't think people think of Madame Alexander and Target or the mass market together. Can you talk about the development of that line? I think, you know, at this point, we'll go wherever the millennial mom is buying their, uh, buying their product. Uh, we're still very dedicated to the specialty marketplace, and that'll always be the hallmark of Madame Alexander products. But, you know, we have been approached over the years by Walmart and Target and other companies as well. And we have made product probably for the last 20 years to address, you know, some of the mass market business out there. Different product, different price points, slightly different play patterns, but it's all important. We can't just be a specialty company. It's important to address the millennial mom wherever she's shopping. Can you expand a little bit on this notion of the millennial mom? And in general, what is she looking for? I think she's looking for something that meets the demands of today. It's something that's just not going to be thrown away after a couple of days. There's an awful lot of product, specifically in the doll area right now, uh, that's, that's based on packaging. And you open the package and there's a big surprise and there's an inexpensive type of item in there. More often than not, it's the doll, an inexpensive doll. The doll gets thrown away after a day or two. Uh, Madame Alexander dolls have been passed on from generation to generation. I have heard 100,000 stories about a little granddaughter still playing with a doll that the grandmother had originally been given by her mother. Uh, these dolls last for generations, and I think that's something that's appreciated by the millennial mom. It's quality, it's durability, it's sustainability as well. For years, you were manufactured in the northern part of New York City. Where's your, where's your manufacturing now, and have you had challenges with the supply chain over the pandemic? The product is made in China. Uh, it's something that we anticipated. You know, we took a look out last year and we said, gee, you know, we really better get started in designing our 2021 and 2022 product and putting our orders in. Uh, additionally, we take our product in on the East Coast rather than the West Coast. And the East Coast has, has had far less issues with getting product in. So we're good. Uh, we have product and we can supply for the rest of the year all of our retailers' needs. The line has really evolved in, in recent years. How do you see bringing a consumer into the Madame Alexander community and keeping her, predominantly her, there for a lifetime, really? The transition from mostly a collectible company to a mostly a play company hasn't happened overnight. Uh, it's taken a number of years and probably the, the better part of the last 15 years. Part of our success has been our distribution, where the Millennium Mom shops. So there's an awful lot of visibility of the Madame Alexander brand, whether you're shopping at Target or you're shopping at the specialty mom and pop stores out there. When you first uh, went to Target, did you feel a little bit like uh, one of the people on Star Trek stepping onto a Klingon ship? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I can remember going, whether it be to Target or Walmart, and trying to sell them a $150 collectible doll, because that's all I had at the time. 
And they looked at me like I was a little bit funny and said, thank you very much. And, you know, five years later, I took another shot at it. And eventually we got it. We, We got there. You alluded before that in 2023, the company will be 100 years old. Uh, Surely you've started planning. Anything you can share with us at this point? If I told you, I'd have to kill you. So, so, uh, I will just make you a promise. You'll be amazed, not only from a product standpoint, but from a, uh, a merchandising standpoint and from a promotional standpoint. We are laser focused on what's going to be happening in 2023. And we'll start next year in 2022 with little teasers. We're planning things with some of our bigger retail customers as far as special products go. There'll be a spectacular presentation of a new Play Doll line for next year that will usher in a whole new generation of Madame Alexander, not collectors, but, uh, but, but Play Pals. And I want to ask you about your designers. I, I've known some people who've been Madame Alexander designers for, for years. Mm-hmm. How are you approaching the design process these days? I noticed that a lot of the outfits on the current line are really contemporary. Where are you getting yeah. your inspirations? Well, we're lucky enough to have one or two of our designers that have been with us since before I got there. I'll be kind and tell you that they were kids when they started. <laughs> uh, uh, and that's the truth. We had some very, very young designers that start that were there when I got there, uh, significantly younger than I am, and are still with the company. So, you know, a sense of, of brand and history has survived through our design team. We've, of course, brought on new designers that have a little bit more experience uh, in the in the mass market areas. And again, millennial moms themselves, they do an enormous amount of research. Uh, they spend an awful lot of time out in the marketplace and on the internet taking a look at what trends are. Just today, we were taking a look at pages and pages of patterns that they're finding out in the marketplace. So I've got I've got to tip my hat to them. They keep us current. And if it wasn't for them, I'd still be making dolls like uh, like we were 25 years ago. And what do you see as the challenges in the doll market right now? Uh, the challenge is always keeping moms and kids focused on play patterns and not spending as much time on the Internet. As a result, the ages that little girls play with dolls and little boys as well have trended down a little bit. Uh, we were capturing a marketplace that really included 9, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds for a very, very long time. Uh, I would tell you that the age range, of course, is from newborn now to about six or seven years. That's really our, you know, our, our wheelhouse right now. In what countries other than the U.S. are Madame Alexander dolls sold? It's an interesting question because doll collecting and doll play is specific to Spain and the UK and to France. They all have a slightly different flavor. Having said that, we've been very, very successful at Harrods over the years and Hamleys and some of the department stores in Eastern Europe. So uh, you'll find Madame Alexander dolls sold in in a lot of these companies and a lot of collectors out there when we go to uh, places like Nuremberg coming by and saying, gee, you know, I love uh, my Madame Alexander collection. We're always surprised to find little pockets in different places. Russia as well. Are you in Asia? We are in Asia. The Japanese marketplace is very, very big. We're collected in China as well. All right, David, we're going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret. You know, I don't think it's going to be a secret to you because you say (laughs) you said that you met Madame Alexander and uh, have had some experience with her. And I have not. 
I came to the company a couple of years after she had passed away. But I love hearing the stories. One of the things that it would surprise a lot of people is that blue haired lady that used to appear on the box was, you know, quite a piece of work. She was difficult to deal with and knew exactly what she wanted. Uh, you know, a real original entrepreneur. There's a story you go, she would go meet some of her suppliers. And if they didn't give her the price that she wanted, she would drive them around Manhattan for hours and hours and hours until they agreed to her price points. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, just stories like that. People come up to me still nowadays, some of the old timers, but uh, with stories like that. She would go into F.A.O. Schwartz and if she didn't like the presentation, she would take the dolls and she would throw them on the floor. And she would just stamp her feet until someone came out and redesigned the whole department. Poor people in FAO, I just heard stories for years about that. Dreaded Madame Alexander coming into the store. She knew what she wanted. She was very particular. And again, here we are 100 years later. She obviously knew what she was doing. She gave multiple generations of girls, women, and consumers wonderful memories. That's right. And that was what it was all about for her. David Morgenstern, Vice President of Sales for Madame Alexander. You've been making history for over a quarter of a century there. We know you're going to continue. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. My pleasure. Love talking about Madam. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are top of mind or certainly having an impact on the toy industry. And today we're talking about reputation and people who listen to this show know I love Shakespeare. And it makes me think of Cassio's line from Othello, reputation, reputation, reputation. Oh, I have lost my reputation. I have lost the immortal part of myself and what remains is bestial. We're talking about brands that are not really bestial, but uh, Richard, you also just wrote about this. Hey, they're pretty bestial, buddy. <laughs> pretty bestial. Now, there is an article uh, I came upon uh, about the Axios Harris 100 poll. Now, let me explain this poll. This poll takes the, the 100 most recognized brands and then ranks them based upon positive and to negative in terms of how are they perceived by those who are aware of them. And I, I found this very interesting in a number of ways, Chris. First of all, I was fascinated that some of the uh, most popular brands are brands that have taken pretty strong political positions. And I'll give you an example. The, the number one brand right now, as far as the, a positive response, is Patagonia. And Patagonia, during the last election, had sewn a tag into their pants that said, throw the bums out. Right, right. I remember I, that. I think it might have said something a little more colorful little than that, actually. And then uh, another company, which, which took an anti-Trump position, which is REI, also, uh, I think it became, was never on the list. And they were number 11. Chris, it's not just on the left. On the right, we see Chick-fil-A, uh, which is known to be a, 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 a conservative company. They're number four. Goya uh, was in, I believe, the top 20. And those took conservative positions. So it appears that if you're a brand and you take a political position, it does not necessarily have a negative impact 
on your brand. However, having said that, I, I thought it was striking that my pillow was 91, <laughs> uh, Fox Corporation was 99, and the Trump Organization was 100. So seems to have something to do with how people, how strongly people like the, the, the product that's being produced as opposed to the message that's being given. It's pretty interesting because sometimes, as you say, the relationship is with the product, but sometimes the relationship is with the image in the marketplace. And the other thing that you did that I thought was really interesting is you ranked the companies from a toy industry perspective as well. Those companies that either carry toys or produce toys. And I thought that especially the fact that Walmart came in at number 83, that seemed significant. Well, let, let me just kind of give you the, the range here. This is just companies that would be that we would relate to in the toy industry. And that was Costco was number nine. That was the highest ranked retailer, followed by Amazon at number 10. And then the elevator went down quite a ways to number 41, which was Target, 48 Best Buy, and 51 EA. 53 was Hobby Lobby. 55 was Kohl's. 71 was Dollar General, 74 Dollar Tree. I think kind of rattled me is that not only was Walmart ranked so low as far as a positive feelings to work, very negative, but they don't even get as high ratings as Dollar General and Dollar Tree. So, Chris, we're looking at this data here, and we, I think you'll agree it's pretty startling that Walmart's 83rd and Costco's number nine, and the question becomes, what's Costco doing right? And I don't know if Walmart is doing not something wrong, but they're doing something not right. So what can we make of this? I don't know. And I don't know either. And <laughs> So let's I mean, talk about it more. <laughs> I have some thoughts on it. I'm sure you do too, but we don't want to pretend that, that just because we have the data, we have the answers. I do think that uh, there are some thoughts that we can share here that might lead us to some further exploration. I don't know if we have a response to that because Walmart is a top destination for toys. So what that would say to me is I go there for my toys, but perhaps I don't like going there. But I do think that for people who are going to Dollar General and Dollar Tree, who ranks a little bit higher than Walmart, it's a great value to them. And None of those stores are a spa-like vacation experience. So I think it's somewhat difficult to extrapolate from this. What does it mean with their with the reputation? I don't think personally that, that Costco is an easy shopping experience. But people really do like it because the company has a, a reputation for treating their employees very, very well. And the environment is perceived as very high value. And I think a visit is a bit of an expedition. I wonder if there's a long-term impact here. So we know that millennials, especially young millennials and Gen Z consumers are very concerned with the social role that the companies they patronize take. So if they are upset with Walmart for perhaps not paying and giving benefits to their employees, will that translate over time into declining sales for Walmart? And does that drive those consumers to Costco because they prefer to support a company 
that reflects more of their values. And I think that's probably the utility of a list like this as kind of a canary in the coal mine for what may be coming down in a changing demographic and psychographic environment. I think we would both agree that this is fodder for a lot of study and a lot of analysis. Uh, What we have here is some data. I think it's going to be really interesting to dig in a little more on these. I, I do, too. I, I think it's it's going to be Fodder's Day. We <laughs> <laughs> Fodder's Day coming up. <laughs> it's, it's, Everyone to know we're not planning a Fodder's Day show. Uh, right. But, but uh, all bad puns aside, I do think that every statistic you can get your hands on, every cultural shift you can measure really does position you strategically to plan for what's coming ahead. Because we know, as we've seen over the last year, Change is a coming, and it's coming fast. And and I think that a lot of people wish change was not coming. <laughs> Dream on. But I think it's, a, it's, it's just inevitable. And it's kind of like we're all on an express train heading somewhere. And some people want the train to stop, but just don't know how to put on the brakes. Exactly. What is inevitable is that we're going to keep going here on the Playground Podcast. That's our train. Chris Byrne with my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, Marketing and Media Agency, Chizcom, and Precise.TV. And we hope you'll step on when we pull into the next station. Thanks for listening.